A lot of times when we at Bell and Cat write about the far right, and well, when I personally write about the far right, a lot of times we write and talk about uh, places that are, especially for an English language audience, you know, a bit obscure or places that you don't normally hear a lot about. That's that's really not what this episode is about. Uh, we are talking today about uh, Germany. So rather than, you know, a smaller country within Europe or a small movement or something like that, we're talking about the largest country in the EU. We're talking about a, a German language sphere, you know, the lar- the uh, most commonly spoken native language within, within the EU. So we're not exactly going to talk about some country that's, uh, you know, all tucked away down there. So Germany has long had some pretty robust uh, far-right scenes, to put it politely. Uh, Different scenes, different tendencies, different movements over the past few years and past few decades. Some of them you will have heard about in, you know, English language media coverage over the past few months, like the, the Reichsburgers movement or, you know, other the... National Socialist Underground terrorists about 10 or 15 years ago, also kind of strange movements like the Querdenkers, but then also all sorts of other uh, other sorts of scenes coming out of Germany, like far-right fashion scenes, music, uh, things like that. And I know as somebody who has reported, <clears throat> obviously, a lot about the far-right across Europe, I maybe haven't spent a lot of time in Germany, reporting from Germany, but uh, wherever I've covered the far right, when I've when I've gone, either even before my time at Bellingcat to, uh, you know, cover and photograph and write about uh, far right events, uh, there's always whether it's in a place like Bulgaria or Belgium or Budapest. Those are three examples of of articles that I've done in places that are obviously not Germany, but they're in, in those and other places, there's always some German connection. There's always some German group there. There's always some international network involved like the Hammerskins or some other, there's, there's always some German connection. But for those of us who, you know, like myself are not uh, speakers of German. I mean, I joke about it enough with German speaking colleagues and friends that I know, I think somewhere between, you know, five to seven words of German, maybe if that on a good day, Um, but jokes aside, even though there is a lot written about and discussed within a German language context about the far right and a ton of knowledge, I don't think it necessarily gets out to a broader and especially English language speaking audience. There is, for those of us who haven't researched much about the country or lived in the country or, you know, really have only been there on vacations or to visit friends or to do for some work events, there's there's a lot that uh, that we can miss. And to be fair, there is a lot to digest. So that's why for this episode of the Bell and Cat Monitoring Podcast, I turn to Una Titz from the Amadeo Antonio Foundation in Germany. Uh, they are a foundation that uh, researches and combats the far right, racism, and the anti-Semitism. Well, thanks, Una, for taking the time to to chat with us. Sure, it's my pleasure. So, as we were joking before before we uh, before we started recording here, there's a there's a 
a lot we could talk about. Um, but I'm wondering if first you could tell us a bit about yourself, who you are, and the kind of work that you do and the kind of things that, that you focus on with your work. Yeah, for sure. So I'm a part of the Amadeo Antonio Foundation from Germany, uh, who specializes in um, analyzing and documenting the far right and um, creating pre uh, prevention and civil um, civil society movements against the far right, against anti-Semitism and racism in general. But I work in a different function, so I'm part of the the hate project of uh, the foundation, which mm -hmm. conducts um, monitoring in the broadest sense, so both qualitative and quantitative analysis. And this implies that we're kind of systematically recording and documenting all mm -hmm. far right and populist phenomena um, on the internet from the um, um, German region, but also from Austria and uh, Switzerland, because mm -hmm. we've seen a lot of migration of uh, far-right actors or even foreign actors trying to um, enter the, the German sphere, so mm -hmm. it's interconnected. And to this yeah. end, we decode their subliminal strategies, their narratives, and um, we focus also on their visual language, on mimetic warfare, and whatever it is the far right is doing um, these days online. And based right. on these findings, we publish articles via Bell Tower News, which is our news mm -hmm. outlet. Uh, we train different institutions. Um, and try to disseminate our knowledge regarding the far right. And we also compel um, like four D-hate reports, which um, focus on different, um, you know, trending topics. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and my focus within um, our project lies on far right conspiracy, ideology and information warfare. So basically, I'm the narrative girl who keeps up to date with the different the, talking points of the, the far right. The, the, the narrative girl is a yeah. that, that's that's a good title to have. And <laughs> one of the, the first things I wanted to ask you about actually relates to to that exactly. In late February, I forget around the exact date, there is this uh, queer front demonstration in Berlin and it got a lot of attention online I assume in German language media obviously it got a ton of attention but it got attention obviously outside of Germany and outside of the German language sphere I guess it was called the Friedens demo the rally for freedom and it looked mm -hmm. like a really strange spectacle to a lot of people myself included like it looks like you can correct me if I'm wrong but it like this event that's led by and attended by politicians, public figures, people who are on the left, self-defined on the left. But this is an event that was attended by and very much supported by elements of the far right as well. Now, maybe I'm asking you a thesis length question here, but can you tell us what exactly this specific event is about or this and also this whole queer front phenomenon is all about as well? Yeah, sure. So let's dig into the madness because it is quite maddening. All right. I'm 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 rubbing my hands together here behind the mic, so. For sure. So, um it all started on the 26th of February. Um that's the date when the Queer Front rally took place in Berlin. It was organized by the figureheads of the left, um whom included Sarah Wagenknecht, 
she mm-hmm. is um she had some bigger functions in the past um you know as being a spokesperson for the linke which is the left mm-hmm. party now she's a, a party member of the german parliament but still um you know a left figurehead or uh the most recognizable politician uh right. from the left and you had other figureheads such as Alice Schwarzer. Um, she is like the second wave feminist uh, editor or former journalist. I don't know what she's doing right now, mm. if that still qualifies as journalist. She's uh, been wandering off in this turfy territory and she's been very... She's the editor-in-chief of the Emma magazine and who has been radicalizing herself in more like... Uh, feminist reactionary spheres, uh, dabbling in turf, uh, you know, trans exclusionary mm-hmm. radical feminism, and she's also been quite outspoken against the um, war in Russia, but not in the way you'd expect it, but more mm-hmm. uh, on the lines of being sort of a Putin sympathizer, which is quite peculiar. And the third Mm. figure we have is like this sort of grand duke of the German left um, or godfather who is Oscar Lafontaine, who comes Mm. from this center left to left party system. He used to be, uh, he served as the minister president of the state of Saarland and um, was more, um, more the ideologue of the modern left. Uh, he has these populist approaches. So this uh, protest or the, the rally was organized by um, these figures. There are some others, but I won't mention mention them or bore you with the uh, with, with the details. Yeah. But but at the core, what you've just described, these are not three random fringe figures on the German. No, they're line. huge. Mm-hmm. They're huge. You know, um, sure. So nonetheless. You know, the rally was formed as a result of these figures petition, which was signed by something like 600,000 people. And it ended up, um, it concluded in the rally. And um, their demands went along the immediate ceasefire uh, of the war in Ukraine. But Mm -hmm. this is where things turn sour really quickly. And this is Mm -hmm. where um, you get this, this square front phenomenon, just to... Um, maybe make sure everybody gets uh, what what we mean by right. Clear- it's hard to it's hard, it's hard to translate like like sure. many German words like this. It's hard to translate, isn't it? Sure. So queer front is this unique German approach. It's a cross section of different ideologies and different um, sometimes extremist milieus who come together and seem to work very fine when it comes to. Um, a particular brand of anti-imperialist uh, mm. and even sovereign um, kind of happenstance, or they they, they all have this sort of contrarian uh, worldview, mm. but one main opposition is like uh, what they can all agree on, be it from the far right, be it from the left, or be it from the anti-vaxxer or sovereign um sphere they can agree upon that uh they don't like america they don't like the us they don't like the nato and that's where they come together so this is what happened on the 26th of february you had all these people like 13000 of them you mm-hmm. know flocking to the icy streets of berlin protesting um 
for the immediate ceasefire um, in Ukraine, but having this very um, pro-Putin sympathetic uh, stance. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And their common goal was that they all managed to agree on their anti-Americanism, on their approval of Putin, and um, they managed to frame Ukraine as some sort of U.S. proxy war uh, against Russia, um, which also is a very old German stance. Um, stance, you know, it happens to work very well with a, a German sentiment of uh, trying to get along with Russia and even portraying mm-hmm. Russia as some sort of ally in the actual war against American imperialism. Right. This, so this whole queer front sphere is, it's not a new phenomenon, of course. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm curious with uh, some of what's been the reaction from, from some of the far right by some of these figures, these overtures from figures on, on the far left. That's where it gets interesting because the far right has been courting figures from the left for a while. I know this sounds like a paradox. It sounds like something that um, I just made up, but it's not. It, we're going on 10 years now since um, figures from the far right have been courting figures like Sarah Wagenknecht or Tilo Saratsin, who are you know, center left or even left figures, because it's part of this bigger metapolitical new right strategy of, um, I don't know, seeing beyond the political sphere and uniting against democracy. And yeah, this is something that the the far right uh, are in desperate need of um, this sort of um, new intelligentsia um, personalities, and they also uh, hope to raise the profile of the right by um, having these figures. And yeah, the end game is to overthrow the system and take the power. It's like, at least in the short term, some short opp- opportunism, some piggybacking, and just trying, yeah, trying to trying to yeah, almost sounds like not even not necessarily bring in new blood but uh, also something that kind of generates some more attention for themselves is what it sounds like to me yeah, yeah. Exactly. what was the re- just a, a final question about about this this freedom rally uh what was some of the domestic reaction in in germany like from diff- from different parts of the political spectrum or or in media or different parts of politics and civil society well, the reactions to the the rally have been quite mixed. Um, it's been, yeah, it's been sort of a mixed bag of um, mostly emotions, which for me um, signals that it's going into a territory of information warfare or disinformation when you work with strong emotions. Um, I don't know, left uh, le- some left outlets have been tripping all over themselves trying to um, present this event as not being as bad as it was, 
as uh, not uh, they were trying to exclude some of the far-right actors who've been there and there have mm. been some noteworthy far-right actors and there have been some noteworthy actors which might be interesting for you because the uh, Putin's Night Riders, the... Um, oh, the, the Night Wolves. Yeah, the Night Wolves. They were oh. there as well. Huh. Those those <laughs> radical leftists, the Night Wolves, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um <laughs> So then you had some moderate reactions uh, and you had, you know, like the the big German uh, newspapers such as the Spiegel who were condemning um, the rally. And a lot of figures from uh, the left have been um, boycotting the protest as well um, because it signifies something, you know, it's a break with German tradition of not speaking to the right and not organizing with the right and you know having this um this stance and Sarah Wagenknecht did everything but um you know she was very welcoming to all figures who are against uh the war in Ukraine but mostly who are against uh Americans and she said that she has no she has no issues um if it comes to protesting with some figures which might be unpleasant because it's better than uh to protest um together with warmongers It's there's there's a lot more that we could we could dive into with this or even more diving into some dissection of the the complicated nature of the German left, which we do. I do not really want to get into (laughs) because that that will probably be uh, pretty bad. But one one, another thing I wanted to really discuss with you was this. uh, What are we going to call this so-called coup attempt that. took place in December. I think listeners will remember because, well, I mean, it made a ton of international news uh, back in December when there were multiple arrests, maybe dozens, something like that, for of a group of so-called uh, Reichsburgers, a group of, of far-right conspiracists led by, among other folks, uh, an obscure aristocrat, a former judge and parliamentarian for the far-right alternative for Germany party, the AFD. And, I mean, on the one hand, to those of us, or I think the many of us outside Germany, it looked, or maybe inside Germany too, it looked so, on the one hand, so laughable and clownish. Like, it was literally the butt of jokes, this weird coup attempting to be led by some no-name wannabe aristocrat. But on the other hand... The fact that these people are as ridiculous as some of them were, the fact that they had access and to weapons and were planning some potentially very violent things, it's indicative of something potentially quite dangerous beneath the surface, isn't it? Sure. Um, I mean, we could start off with the jokes and get into the serious... Uh, that's that's a good way to do it, yeah. Um. You know, just to sum it up, uh, I, I think it's a joke in itself. But then again, it's a very serious business. Back in the summer of 2022, you have this disgruntled small town aristocrat called Heinrich the 13th um, of Prince Royce, who decided mm-hmm. he no longer wanted to accept being forgotten. And his fam, um, you know, he tried to take matters uh, in his own hands. 
um, for his family who lost their prop- property after the end of the Second World War for simply being enthusiastic members of the NSDAP and for serving in the Wehrmacht. So he was very, uh, he felt betrayed by, um, yeah, democracy, to put it lightly. Mm-hmm. And you have this figure who, you know, comes from from a blue blood family. His family kind of um, othered him or estranged him for his outlandish conspiracy views. And uh, he took matters in his uh, own hands and it escalated and he planned a coup, which was super detailed. His plan included staging a government coup before Christmas, taking hold of the government, um, you know, storming uh, the Bundestag and then taking um, taking hold as as the leader of a new Reich. And for for this, he had a so-called company of heroes, which included the former celebrity chef, a police chief. Oh, I forgot about the celebrity chef. Yes, I remember. Yeah, sure. Before. You know, yes. he, he wanted to become like this um, minister of culture, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, um, that was his plan. Um, okay. Sure, and you have like a uh, former army general, a KSK special forces operative, mm-hmm. and even an AFD judge who was the member of the German Bundestag, and she all she still had her old Bundestag, um, you know, uh, identification. Permit. Yeah, exactly, and this is how they planned to storm uh, the Bundestag by getting in with this old permit and you know taking stands. They. Um, managed to acquire quite some weaponry arsenal and they also managed to uh, bunker some some gold. So they were quite prepared and this ended up in, you know, the the biggest um, raid uh, organized by the German police uh, in the history of the Federal Republic of Germany. these are a couple of people, but they did a lot of damage. And um, they come from this sovereign movement uh, background, or we call it in Germany, we call it Reichsbürger um, yeah, movement. That's, been, that's something I wanted to ask you about, because I think sure. that's one of these things that's hard to, like I was saying before, not just a word in German, but a, a concept that kind of maybe has reference with the sovereign citizen movement in the United States and other places, but in its own ways is, is a bit different. I mean, again, I don't want to ask you a thesis length question in the middle of this, but um, could you, can you tell us a bit about who, who these Reichsburgers are? What do they actually believe in? Like what, what's the core of their belief? Yeah, Reichsburger, this is another particular German um, offshoot of something we've seen in other countries as well. The Reichsburger uh, ideology basically translates to German sovereignism, uh, but at its core, um, the Reichsburger are sort of sticklers for German history and do not consider Germany being part of a sovereign state. And um, they still consider that um, Germany has been uh, occupied by the Allied forces um, since the end of the Second World War. Hence, they um, refuse to have anything. I know they don't recognize the uh, the German state. They don't recognize any sort of uh, bureaucratic measures. And in the past, they've been called... Um, paper terrorists because they've been very known to um, create their own uh, or forge their own documents from IDs 
um, up to birth certificates and you name it. But right now we have, um, even though it's a heterogeneous uh, movement, you have quite the organized uh, milieu in Germany who is highly um, highly dangerous, uh, quite well-trained, uh, who have a lot of resources, who've started buying up villages and buying up uh, property in parts of Germany, who have their own um, fictitious kings or sovereigns. Mm-hmm. And um, they're also closely married with wider conspiracy movements. They dabble in esoteric beliefs and alternative med- medicine. Um, mm-hmm. They're like the OG anti-vaxxers from uh, from Germany. And also they have a lot in common with QAnon and they adopted a lot of uh, things from QAnon because uh, right. apparently Reichsburger do like uh, Trump for some reason. That I, it, it makes sense in in their in their minds how it, it makes sense i guess sure. um but it's it it really yeah it it really does sound like this m- mixed bag uh like you said a, a heterogeneous movement but a, a mixed bag of influences from outside germany like qAnon but then some very uniquely german attributes to it i mean the, the entire root of it like you said coming out of uh, this conspiracy theory about the post world war 2 uh settlement yeah and maybe to add you know many of them hold far-right beliefs and many from the far-right hold um sympathies towards the reichsberger so they sometimes interlap overlap and they work together very closely we have former members of the npd which is like the uh, German far right party, uh, who also turned to uh, being sovereign citizens, um, they've staged a couple of terrorist. Um, you know, they had a, a couple of um, terrorist attempts in the past, and they became um, more violent as time passed on. And if you just look at the last three years, you see the number of uh, Reichsbürger. Um, you you see a Reichsburger violence uh, increasing them dramatically, mm-hmm. which also corresponds with uh, the numbers of weapons being sold because these are exactly the target audience. What makes them a bit special is that they don't have this sort of, um, you know, the, the age group or the peer group of the Reichsburger in general is that you have people who are from 50 onwards. So you don't right. have more of this um, youth-held sort of energy of uh, demonstrating against the system because uh, you radicalize uh, through your teens. No, Mm -hmm. these are mostly disgruntled citizens who fall off the grid. And it also corresponds with, um, yeah, our company of heroes here or uh, these Mm -hmm. disgruntled, the the Reichsburger network, uh, in question, which we've started off with, who also, you know, came from all sorts of spheres of um, the German establishment. We have, you know, the culinary chef, we have a high-ranking uh, officer, decorated of- officer who's been active in Kosovo, you have a police chief, you have a former doctor. So these are not your typical uh, extremists. Right, and I think that that's so, uh, an impression I had from the outside of the entire Reichsberger phenomenon. Maybe 
similarly to a lot of the sovereign citizen movements or other other QAnon-ish type elements in the United States or Canada or where I'm from or or elsewhere, the sense I got was that the Reichsburgers like them are not so much a young demographic. I mean, that's certainly I wouldn't certainly probably isn't the case entirely across the board, but uh, I'm sure if there's any any scholarly academic research on on the, on the age uh, age differences between you know people who are, are in, in, involved in Reichsburger movements or subscribe to those ideologies compared to say football football hooliganism and the far right and people who on the who get involved in combat sports you know the age the age breakdown is probably going to be extremely different exactly you have mostly older people you can actually see this on their uh when you study the visual language or um even the um, the content strategies they have it's quite interesting because you you see a milieu who is not very you know tech savvy in any way mm-hmm. um, they're quite clumsy and they sometimes even disclose their plans because this was the case with um um, this situation we had on uh, with the plan coup for the 7th of December, um, the former KSK special officer was uh, held up somewhere in, uh, hold up somewhere in, I, I don't know, I think he was in Ibiza or something or mm-hmm. Orca, I'm not sure. And he was disclosing his plans uh, via Odyssey um, in an open for all video. And I've studied similar, you know, um, to these guys, another uh, group was which was adjacent, who um, used um, funny euphemisms, or they thought they were quite savvy. Um, these these were other guys who were planning an attack on the German energy grid, and they came up with code words for the attack, which were um, along the way of hosting a party, bringing fireworks to it. So it's not really. Well, that's, 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 that's such a tough code to crack there. Sure. I've, I've cracked the Enigma code on that. Yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. And I think like, that's a good way to, when you talk about this, I wasn't actually aware of this, but it, it unfortunately does make sense how their visuals and I guess, by extension, their aesthetics in the way they they communicate are certainly going to be very different from the kinds of far right that I focus on and the ones that I am a bit familiar with from the German context, which is more the you know transnational, especially combat sports and and far right fashion sphere. I mean, when we talk about aesthetics there, I'm sure it's it's a completely different universe. Sure, because those are people who are highly organized, who know how to go off grid, who um, have exceptional skills in, I don't know, uh, graphic design and even computer programming. Whereas our guys, you know, they seem at there's um, a term for it. It's called boomer. You know, it's like, yes, yeah, there there is. And I think I'm sure other people on the far right, the younger ones on the far right would sit would use the same same kind of terminology to describe them for sure but, but they're useful idiots for the far right yeah uh re- well i think maybe a bit related to that one thing i wanted to also ask about was something that i noticed you know on the on the day of the arrests in december i remember sitting at my desk and following it uh trying to you know following english language articles you know following what some of my 
German-speaking colleagues were able to quickly translate and tell me. Uh, but one of the things that struck me was hearing about and seeing that the all the arrests were basically known to a lot of German media ahead of time. I think there were a number of journalists on Twitter that day in German who said, like, yeah, we've known, we've known, we've all, all of us know that these arrests have been coming for for a week. And I thought that was something, well, a bit strange in terms of that this was a very, the, the arrests, even on the day of, seemed to be from from the authorities a very deliberately stage managed process. Like, am I am I out to lunch and thinking that, or what? What exactly has gone on around that? Unfortunately, the German authorities tried to paint this um, this this raid on the Reichsburger uh, as a sort of unique triumph, and mm. because, like you said, it was the biggest arrest. It was the biggest arrest. You know, to their credit, it was. But the fact is that it's the same German authorities who have been um, laughing about the, um, the, the Reichsburgers for years, who are underprepared when dealing with Reichsburger, because we had some German police officers being shot dead by Reichsburger who escalated, who didn't want to leave their uh, their apartments, and it just um, it just shows how underprepared the force is when it comes uh, to tackling these individuals, and it's only uh, you know part of a much bigger picture, which. Um, entails a number of highly active operatives and highly active individuals who uh, have violent schemes and want to overthrow the system. So this is sort of like the the peak of the iceberg, which is very disconcerting. And it's, um, I think it was the fourth or the fifth raid uh, last year alone. Um Another another big one took back um, in April, and then they've tried uh, some Reichsburger tried to band together the, the same guys who wanted to attack the energy grid. They also wanted to uh, kidnap the health prime minister and demand ransom, and uh, had some anti-vaccinist uh, uh, agenda to their mm. to their minds. So it's part of a much bigger issue, which is still being overlooked. And, um, you know, the intelligence is there. You have journalists, you have a lot of people who are pinpointing to this issue, and it has been quite ignored. The issue, the issue with n- not just the Reichsburgers, but with, I assume you're also referring to the far right in in general. Yeah, exactly. And that, that despite this significant arrest or a series of arrests, that they are still not dealing with the issue of the far right in Germany and, you know, transnationally as well as they should. Let's put it bluntly um, or frame it bluntly. The far right in Germany is thriving. It's actually thriving. It's highly professional. Um, it operates across German borders, not only to 
um, to Austria or to Switzerland. We had um, the far right, you know, um, active in, um, you know, going to training camps in uh, Poland, in Romania, in Hungary, even in Ukraine. You had uh, far right members of the NPD visiting uh, Russia and, um, you know, being guest um visiting the uh, Rodina party, you had a uh, new right figureheads such as Martin Zellner and his wife, Brittany Zellner, attending the Moscow Youth Conference together with Maria Sharova. Um, these are the same persons who also had connections to, um, to Tarrant, the terrorist from Christchurch. You have them connecting uh, within Sweden, building their networks there. So... Um, there's a lot which is not being done. There's a lot which has to be done. We have um, a, a very well-connected network of far-right actors who um, created a lot of havoc uh, not long ago with the uh, National Socialist Underground, mm-hmm. documents which still haven't been uh, fully recovered as to, um, you know, paint the whole picture of what actually happened there and if this uh, terrorist network is still active. Um, spoiler alert, yes, it is. It still is active. Yeah. And this is well, that, just... That, that's not particularly reassuring, but... Yeah, it's not. It's just scraping, <laughs> you know, um, the at at the edges of um of what it is of what far right uh, ideology means in germany because um we joke around within the foundation and say there's you know there's um far right uh, offshoot for everything so from uh german national socialist black metal uh, metalers in germany to mm-hmm. martial artists to hipster right uh, you name it you have everything there yeah, that's you. You're that's those are some of the people I've come across in in my work. I think, as you know, um, looking ahead to the rest of 2023. I mean, I think you've just spoken to some of this. Is there anything that really stands out to you from the German far right that the rest of us, in other words, like people like me outside Germany and who are less familiar with the German political and social context, are there particular things from the German far right that we should pay? particular attention to over the next few months, over the rest of the year? I think that the German far right, um, maybe as a uh, an opposing factor, maybe to, to the US far right or what they've mainstreamed more efficiently. Uh, what we're seeing right now is uh, with this queer front phenomenon um, that they're trying to forge new alliances uh, with other disgruntled citizens that they're trying to, um, in their mainstreaming efforts, they're um, provoking to, you know, through identity politics and cultural warfare. They haven't been um, that... Uh, that keen on presenting themselves as, um, you know, they're, they're trying to play this sort of hide and seek uh, game of you're a Nazi, not no, you're a Nazi, I'm not a Nazi, we are not far right, we're actually just concerned citizens. They're forging alliances uh, in this manner uh, across the board and um, they haven't been as... Um, 
in the past they used to hide well and right now they're quite up in your face um and they they're very open to uh showcasing their alliances even within the german uh the german uh government because we've seen with the um, there was this event who, uh, which took uh, part in Apolda in uh, Germany. There was this AFD Congress uh, which hosted a, vi- a wide array or um, you know, a broad spectrum of uh, far-right figureheads, um, which just a couple of years ago um, would not have shown their faces. So you had... AFD members posing next to far-right figureheads, posing next to mixed martial uh, artists from Kampf der Nibelungen or, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and this is something that's very concerning and probably the most concerning thing of all is that they're very, um, they're, they're doing very well right now in terms of audience reach because they've managed to build up an alternative media landscape um, this they've did by moving uh, resources from Ger- Germany. So you had this migration of uh, far-right editors who moved to Austria to join Stefan Magnit uh, with his Auf Eins team, which is like this internet television station or broadcasting station. Okay. Um, and they have like a monthly reach or fa- uh, of three to four million viewers within really? Germany. And this is highly disconcerting because um, Stefan Magnet, whom I've mentioned, is uh, a far-right figure. He used to be in the Austrian um, far-right. He also has ties to the NPD. He attended Hammerskin's concert, so he's not um, an unknown person. And he managed to rebrand himself as some sort of uh, Alex Jones type information warrior who tries to bring the truth to the people uh, through his network. So you have this migration of, you know, German mods, editors moving explicitly to Austria to then broadcast back to Germany and beyond. And it's it's disconcerting because it works. It um it it works to um create uh, skepticism and distrust in public institutions, in uh, public broadcasting. It serves them, uh, you know, narratives of um you know fear mongering and anti-semitism have been uh, going viral in Germany, and we've been talking about things which a couple of years ago would have been unthinkable in Germany. So they're being popularized again. Mainstreaming and pushing the envelope in terms of of rhetoric, in terms of things that were quote-unquote unacceptable or less acceptable to say in public are becoming a bit more. Is that what you mean? Yeah, we're, uh, you know, the far right has managed to... Um, create this this sphere uh, in which it seems to be okay to question the Holocaust, to question Germany's involvement or um, you know abuse and uh, violence of the second uh, in the Second World War and its um, genocidal uh, history. They've managed to um, popularize the "I'm just asking questions" uh, mm. historical revisionist brand. 
and this uh, corroborates with um, the rising numbers in violence against minorities, in transphobia and anti-Semitism and so on and so forth. So uh, somehow this brand of stochastic terrorism is working. Once again, it's not particularly reassuring to to hear this, but on the other hand, I, I appreciate you coming on here to not just enlighten me personally, but but everybody who may or may not have varying levels of knowledge or understanding about uh, the the far right in Germany, which which as I think as we said at the beginning, you know, could be uh, its own multiple books or or probably needs to be. So, um, thanks very much, Una. For sure, glad to be here. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Bellingcat Monitoring Podcast. If you want to keep up with what the far right is up to around the world, make sure to follow the Bellingcat Monitoring Project on Twitter, at BCAT Monitoring, and on Bellingcat.com. The Bellingcat Monitoring Podcast is produced by Michael Colborn and Giancarlo Fiorella for Stitching Bellingcat. The music you've heard is titled Glowing Vitality by Dreamcave, courtesy of Epidemic Sound.